You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, what's up, Refuge family? I pray that you're well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if you don't know me, if you're new with us, your first time with us, anything like that, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here at Refuge Community Church. And thank you for joining us. This is one of our online weeks. We, we stagger them with having what we call our family gatherings, outdoor services in the parking lot of Terry Road Baptist Church here in Dove Springs in Southeast Austin. Um, yeah, thank you for joining us for this one. We are prayerfully looking forward to the day when we are not just meeting outdoors and not just meeting online, but back indoors at a location where we can gather together inside and worship together. Uh, and so if you are a part of, of Refuge Community Church, you call Refuge home. I would encourage you to be actively praying for that, right? That is on our radar. We are longing and really, I mean, kind of excited about getting back inside and progressively uh, getting to the point where we are just regularly meeting indoors to worship together. Whether it's here at Terry Road Baptist Church or whether it is uh, at another location, we are just looking forward and anxiously awaiting the day when we're going to get news back about a place that we can uh, consistently use that'll help that'll get all of us in there and, and worshiping together. Uh, safely. And so be praying for that. Uh, But right now, as we uh, go through online services and outdoor uh, services, we welcome you and encourage you to come out uh, and join us. Uh, Either, I hope both are a blessing to you. Um, Anyway, as for right now, uh, what we're doing in this time is that we're actually jumping into the word of God together. All right. Uh, We're going to be continuing a series we started last week in the book of Titus, a small New Testament book. It was actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young man named Titus that he had put in charge of the church plants on an island called Crete. Now, Crete was a real, like a a trade island, if that makes sense. Um, In the Mediterranean, it made a lot of money, kind of almost got, you can also see it was like a resort island, just full of indulgence, but also had a history of violence. Uh, and 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 like armed conflict, right? So it was a, a weird place to to think. Hey, this is a perfect spot for a church. Yet uh, it was a place that Paul saw as ripe for the transforming power of the gospel through the local church. Uh, and so today, what we're going to be doing is we're continuing our series, our time in uh, Titus, by looking at uh, the next chunk of text, which is really taking a look at. Uh, the, the the primary reason Titus is even in Crete, which is to install church elders, a.k.a. to install church leaders. Now, hear me. I know that just hearing that right off the bat, some of us are like, that eh, doesn't sound that interesting, right? Like a text about church leadership or a little bit of church government, that sounds like kind of mad boring, if I'm being honest. And, and while I hear you, I, I would respectfully disagree, but while I hear you, um, I suspect you feel that way for one of two reasons, if not both, um, or, or probably both. The first is that maybe you don't see yourself as a leader, at least at this time, right? Like you don't doubt yourself, but you don't see yourself as a leader in this season. And so you don't feel like this text applies to you, right? You, you come to church to help uh, kind of get your life right, to get closer to God, to, to grow spiritually, but you don't have aspirations um, to lead others at this point in your life. And so... Um, This doesn't feel that applicable. The idea of church leadership doesn't feel that applicable. Uh, Now, that's only some of you. And I suspect that that, while that may be a good good amount, I suspect there's another group that 
really didn't just stop at that thought of, I don't think I'm into leadership right now, but really it extends deeper than that because not only do you not see yourself uh, as a leader right now, uh, you don't see yourself as the leadership type at all, right? When, when you think of a leader, you think of big personality and futuristic thinking and, and certain skills, and, and you're not that big personality. You're not that futuristic or visionary thinker. You don't feel like you have the skills or the persona uh, really to, to get that done. And so uh, you think I come to church and I go to my workplace and I have my relationships with my friends so that I can be supportive and serve and love others, not to be in the front, not to lead, that's, that's not my role, right? The background, that's my role. And, and friend, while I hear you, and there's nothing wrong with those characteristics, right? Not having a big personality, X, Y, and Z, I, I respectfully would push back on some of those ideas. I would specifically push back and, and really call into question whether that's how the Bible paints you as not a leader, as not the leadership type. And hear me, when I say that, what I don't mean is that the Bible is like, oh, everybody should have a big personality or be a visionary thinker or have like, or be leading the charge and not supporting other people. That's not what I'm saying at all. But rather uh, that the transforming power of the gospel desires to build leadership into each and every member of the body. Each person with their own skills and personality types and perspectives and cultures and, and, and experiences, not to bestow honor on that type of person, but rather because hurting people from every walk of life, every experience, every culture, every personality type are in desperate need uh, to be led to the feet of a God who desires to heal them and to make them whole. And the person that's going to lead them there just might be you. A little different form of leadership there, huh? But nonetheless, today we're going to look at how the transforming power of the gospel empowers the church. And what I don't mean by that is a building or an organization or a pastor, but the people of God, you and me, to lead, to lead for the sake of God's glory and the advancement of his mission. Okay, to do this, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1. We're just going to work through verses 5 through 9, okay? Uh, and we're really going to start just with verse 5. So if you would jump in, I want to go ahead and dive in so that uh, we can get to it. Again, Titus chapter 1, uh, verse 5 reads like this. The reason I, Paul, left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and, as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. Now, before we move forward, right, full steam ahead, uh, we, we have to understand a couple things. Because in order to understand how powerful what's happening here is, we have to understand a little bit of history. Specifically, the history of Paul's missionary work in Crete. Okay, now many historians and theologians believe that the Cretan church, the church we're talking about here, uh, was really, it was planted by Paul, but it was a fourth quarter effort by Paul. Meaning, uh, it was like something he did much later in his life. Okay, and, and while not 100% agreed upon, many believe that the church in Crete actually started uh, during what amounted to like a pit stop on the island of Crete. 
uh, during one of Paul's missionary journeys, right? Last week we talked about how Crete was a strategic uh, island in the trade routes of the Mediterranean. So if you were making your way anywhere across the Mediterranean, which that's the majority of where Paul was doing his missionary work, it was logical to assume that Paul would have stopped at Crete at some point. But this is where it gets a little bit confusing because these missions, this activity in Crete isn't mentioned in the book of Acts anywhere. And the book of Acts really does document a lot, not all, but most of Paul's missionary endeavors. And so not having the time to get into every little scholarly study or or every little bit of history, several of the gaps in the story have led theologians and historians to believe that, that the origin of this work for Paul meaning Paul's time in Crete would have been extraordinarily short, very short, just maybe even spanning just a few days or something like that, right? Like, and this is the explanation behind the verse we just read, right? Behind Paul's instruction to Titus in verse 5, which is for Titus to uh, set right what was left undone. To set right what was left undone, not undone because of Paul's deficiencies or failures, but rather uh, because of how short of a time Paul was actually there. And the biggest thing Titus is to set right, the biggest of the undone things, is for Titus to appoint church elders. Church elders. Now, if you don't know what elders are, that's okay. Let's take a second to break that down. In the New Testament, church elders uh, are the overseers of the church. Right. They are, again, for the New Testament church and, and which is what we are. Right. A church body anywhere after the Old Testament anywhere after the book of Acts uh, in the New Testament church. The elders are the highest authority in the local body, uh, uh, in the local church body. Uh, if you watched our membership video on church leadership while we were doing our membership class, then you know we have elders here at Refuge. Myself and Sean are two full time pastors. And we're hoping to add more soon, but we're just in the process of, of kind of like what Titus is doing, right? Seeing and finding uh, men to, to fill that role. Now, I want to make a couple of notes uh, clear, right? A couple of points clear. Elders are not limited to full-time pastors, okay? Some pastors in the life of our church will be elders and others won't be. Uh, and some elders won't work at the church at all, right? Rather, they'll be lay elders, individuals that work full-time outside of the church, uh, but, but serve uh, as non-paid elders and are elders just the same as Sean and I are. Um, so I say all that to say uh, that eldership, right? The role of elder is a unique role in the Bible and a unique role in the local church, all right? It, it, and it's a church that's meant uh, to protect, lead, and serve the church as Jesus under shepherds, taking care of the church um, on his behalf. Now, it's Titus' job, having said that, it's Titus' job to find those individuals for the churches on the island of Crete. And it can't just be anyone, right? It can't just be anyone. Paul's not like, hey, find some people, throw them in there, and they're going to be the ones that lead the churches on, around the island. No, no, he lays out a criteria uh, for Titus in the following text, right? First off, they're, they're to be men. If men are the spiritual leaders in the home, right, then they are also going to be the ones called to be spiritual leaders in the house of God. But they're not just to be any men. They, they have to be men who meet uh, a certain criteria in three specific areas of life. The first is that they have to be blameless at home. Check out verse 6. It says an elder must be blameless and 
must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Uh, the greatest indication of whether a man can care for the house of God is whether he can care for his own house. Right? How a man cares for his wife, for his children, is a corollary to how he's going to care for the sheep at any given church. And so this is why Paul emphasizes, hey, they have to be blameless at home. Now hear me, let's pause here because blameless doesn't mean perfect. There's still going to be issues, right? Um, it, blameless doesn't mean without flaw completely. What it means is uh, without abnormal flaw, right, if that makes sense. Uh, there's going to be ups and downs in a marriage, right? Ups and downs in a marriage. That's, that's, that's a normal thing. There's going to be uh, children that are going to grow up and wrestle with doubt or maybe start to challenge authority a bit. All of that is normal and all of that is fine. Um, but this person is meant to reflect the character of Christ with consistency at home uh, more often uh, than not. In fact, so often and with such regularity that they're above a reproach in any area uh, of their life at home. And so they're blameless at home. But the second area is that they're blameless in character. Take a look at verse se verses 7 and 8. As an overseer, it's just another word for elder, uh, of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy nor for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. In short, elders must be godly people. Okay, godly people. They should exude the fruits of the Spirit, reflecting Christ's character, 100%. But that expression really being a reflection of having Christ's heart, loving things that are good and holy, while being sensible, patient, understanding. Again, not perfect. Right? No one is going to be perfect on this side of eternity, but reaching a spiritual maturity that doesn't require reproach in these areas, uh, but, but rather loving, hol loving holiness, godliness, purity, uh, even when he isn't able to be all those things perfectly all the time. Right? Like, like this is the individual that Titus is looking for, blameless in character. And last, uh, these individuals are to be blameless in doctrine. Check out verse 9. It says, Holding to the faithful messages taught so that he will be able both to encourage the sound teaching, with sound teaching, and to refute those who contradict it. Um, elders, from Paul's view, the individuals Titus is looking for uh, are to be steeped in the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel. Holy. Right? Because it's going to be that truth that both builds up the church, right? that edifies the church, that shapes and forms the church, that transforms the church. Uh, and it's going to be that truth that protects the church. It's going to be that truth that corrects us when we're believing a lie or when we're being influenced by the culture and teachings of the world uh, around us instead of by the truth of God. And, and this is a huge point, friends, because it means that the elders of the church aren't running... Uh, are running the church based on preference, right? They're not like, well, what do I like most about Christianity? What type of person do I like more? What type of personality do I like more? It's about the truth of the gospel, the truth of God being alive and at work and, and, and people showing the truth of God through their own lives. 
and through their understanding of God's word and that being uh, what is anchoring the church and moving the church forward and really what is even leading the church, right? Everything being centered on that truth. And I hope it's encouraging because that's what, that's what we're aiming to do as the leaders of this church, right? We're not trying to make uh, people or the church into our image, Sean's image or my image, but rather uh, we desire to see uh, the church edified by the truth of the gospel, right? By the truth of the scriptures, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, changing and transforming our lives. That's what we desire. And that's what Titus is looking for. Someone who's blameless in doctrine. So we have blameless at home, blameless in character, and blameless in doctrine. And that's who Titus is supposed to find. Not just one, but several. To set elders, to appoint elders in every town where there's a church on the island of Crete. On the island of Crete. On an island whose culture is known for being indulgent, violent, highly pagan. That's where he's supposed to find these people. You see, if you listen to last week's sermon, you might remember that Crete, the island where all this is taking place, uh, has uh, a reputation for being indulgent. Uh, Authors have literally referred to it as a resort island, a place where people came and indulged all they wanted in every way and in every aspect of life, even going to a violent side to express their indulgence. If that wasn't enough, it was also, again, a pagan island steeped in pagan worship and mythological belief, specifically uh, in the ancient king Minos, right? The son of Zeus, uh, uh, an ancient mythological figure that was so, like, right, demented, so tyrant-like that he was written in to become uh, the, the ruler, the judge of the underworld, right? And this is who, who the, the Cretans see themselves as a descendant of. This is where they come from. This is a part of their shared story or history, their, their story, their origin story. This is how they see themselves, And if all those cultural dynamics weren't enough, in addition, the Cretan churches, these churches that Titus is caring for and and, and installing elders in are all new churches, maybe even small churches. They hadn't been established or maybe even open very long. They, They still need elders to really bring organization to the church in general. This is what Titus is looking for. This is the the context that he's in and the people that he's looking for. How is he going to follow? What? How is Titus going to find these people? What rock is he going to pull them out from under? What heaven is he going to is he going to pull them straight out of? How is he going to find this type of individual in this type of context? And friend, this opens up a powerful truth that these verses show us. And that is that Paul expected transformation. The people that were going to be elders in the Cretan churches were Cretans because Paul expected their lives to be transformed. He expected lives to be changed, hearts to be changed, minds to be changed and to be renewed because he knew a reality that we oftentimes forget, which is that truth transforms The truth of the gospel, the truth of God, the truth of scripture. When heralded, they transform 
When a church is heralding the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, lives are changed. Healing starts to take place. Minds are made new. He expected, Paul expected every single person that started attending uh, the Cretan church, who started engaging with the truth of the gospel, to be transformed by the truth of the gospel. Not just men. Not just elders, everyone in chapter two, right? And we're going to get to it just a couple of weeks, right? Chapter two starts laying it out for older people, for young men, young women, for singles, uh, for, for children, for servants, everybody. Everybody was getting some of the truth of the gospel and that truth transforms. Who, who are going to be the, the elders, the transformed people Paul was going to find or Titus was going to find among the Cretans, the Cretans were. Because the truth transforms. And out of that transformed people, out of that people in the, in, in, in the process of transformation, again, this isn't, this isn't perfection, this is transformation. It's, 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 it's growth, it's maturity, it's not perfection, right? But out of that growth, out of that process of transformation, leaders were going to be produced. Leaders at home, leaders at work, and yes, leaders even at church. But, but not, not leaders that were after the most money they could get. That already existed on Crete. Not leaders who were out to get the most indulgence they could get from any area of life. That already existed on Crete. No, leaders were going to be produced and brought out of this transformed people with the aim of glorifying God and leading others to know Jesus. And, and, and hear me, friends. You, all of the Cretans, they weren't all gonna lead CEOs or be or be an elder or run a nonprofit or or, or, or be over a team. And man, that if that sounds horrible to you, that's okay. Because not every leader is called to do those things. But leadership doesn't mean always being in front. It doesn't mean having a certain type of skill. Right? Nothing in this description is about being in front. Nothing in this description is about having specific skills. Everything in this description is about loving Jesus. Because whether leading a church or simply leading someone uh, in prayer, right? The person that most effectively uh, leads others to Jesus is the one that's truly in love with Jesus, him or herself. And leading people to Jesus is what leadership is about for Paul. It's what leadership is about for Titus. Like I mentioned, friend, maybe for you, the idea of being in front is scary. That's okay. Maybe the Lord wants to use you to just lead someone in prayer, to serve someone, to love someone, to show godly character, to show godly affection, to model Jesus, and even to model faith as we come to him in repentance, right? Not, not, again, not perfection, but, but simply the transformed life of increasingly loving Jesus. Maybe that's going to be the thing that leads someone a little bit closer to Jesus, and that's the way he wants you to lead. And praise God for that, friend. Praise God for that. Friends, it's easy. It's easy to think that we come to church to receive encouragement, receive a little bit of hope, to feel closer to God, uh, so that it can all help us, so that it can help us achieve our dreams, right? Maybe uh, do better at work, or, or maybe have a better life, or be a better person. Maybe if we can, to retire, right? Really achieve the American dream. And while those things aren't bad, friends, Paul had no interest in the American dream. Paul had no interest in the Cretan dream. And neither does Jesus. 
They don't see faith as something that we add in in order to help us and propel us to get to the things that we loved and the things we cherished before coming to Jesus in the first place. But rather, faith is, is the means by which the truth of Jesus, truth is the means by which we as people are fundamentally transformed and our dreams. Right, that, that it's the means by which we're transformed along with our dreams and our desires and our affections. Right, this is how Paul sees this transformation. This is how Paul sees this church. He's away, he's not there, but he trusts that if the truth of the gospel, the truth of scripture, the truth of God is being proclaimed, then that means people's lives are being transformed because truth transforms. Friends, God desires to transform your life. It didn't stop at, at Titus. It didn't stop at the Cretans, right? This is, this is the, the narrative of the church, that the church proclaims truth and truth transforms. And the, therefore, God desires to transform our lives through the truth, to transform our lives in, into affection for him and longing for him and satisfaction in him and affections for what he loves, right? But but also to, to lead. Again, not necessarily on front, but even just given the desire to lead others to know more about him. To be an agent of transformation in the lives around us. That's the transforming work of the gospel that, that Paul desired to see in the Cretans and that I believe God desires to see in us. The only question I have for you today, friend, is what's stopping that transformation in you? What's stopping that transformation in you? Because hear me, I'm not a fool. I'm not a fool. I know that many of you, many of you have wanted what I'm saying for a long time. You've heard lists like this before, lists that talk about treating your family good and being humble and being peaceful and kind and generous and gentle and loving. And you've read Proverbs 31 if you're a woman and you've read Galatians 5 about the fruits of the spirit and, and you've seen lists like this before and, and you've longed for them. You've, you've probably even heard sermons like this before and you've been inspired knowing I, I want to be godly or I want to be better. I, I want to be that agent of transformation. I want to see others changed. I want to change. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going I'm to do it. You know what, you, you, you're right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do it. And you, you start putting your pet, the, the pedal to the metal and you, you, you buckle up and you, you try and it goes good for a week. You stretch it out to two weeks, maybe three. If you're lucky, you get to four. And you feel like you're doing great. And then you get tired. And then you get pressured and you get stressed and your kids start acting up and, and your spouse begins to frustrate you for, for one reason or the other. Or maybe your roommate when you come home or when they come home is in some type of mood or, or you see an advertisement that sparks up a feeling of lust or, 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 or you see an Instagram post that sparks up a feeling of jealousy. You have a spending lapse that, that leaves you holding on to your money in greed and in fear and in the snap of a finger 
everything you thought you had built, all these changes and the transformation you thought had taken place, all comes crumbling down like a pile of bricks. Friend, I know you've probably seen this and longed for it, but you're just not sure why you can't. And hear me, friend, can I encourage you and maybe discourage you at the same time, but, but encourage you with something that is true, but sometimes hits home a little hard for us. What's stopping you from changing, from transforming, is often not your effort, it's your heart. Friends, hear me often, what's stopping you from changing and transforming is not your effort, but your heart. Sometimes it's effort, hear me. If you're out there and just like, yo, I just don't care, then, then yeah, you're probably not putting forward a lot of effort. But for those that have tried, that have seen the calls of scripture and said, I want that man, but I'm just struggling. I try and I try and I try and it never seems to go away. I always seem to come back to it. Friend, oftentimes it's not your effort, friend. It's your heart. Because hear me, at the root of every sinful action is actually a sinful disbelief. I want you to hear me again. At the root of every sinful action is sinful disbelief. You see, we like to think that sin is just some instinctive action fueled by sinful flesh that just has to be controlled, right? And if I, if I exert enough effort, I can rein it in. And so we go out from sermons like this or reading texts like this and think, hey, you know, I, I, I can do it. I just have to not be lustful. I just have to not be jealous. I just have to not be uh, uh, harsh or unkind, right? Insert your struggle into that list. But we're wrong. We're wrong. You see, the real reason we're struggling with lust isn't because we're just naturally instinctively lustful. It's because we're naturally and instinctively disbelieving of the fact that God can satisfy my deepest longings. And when I don't believe that, I have the tendency to go out and try to grab those satisfactions myself. Right? I, I'm not just instinctively jealous. No, my heart instinctively disbelieves that God is going to provide the best thing. And so when I see all these other options, I think that provision must be better. There must be something better out there and I get bitter and I get jealous. Right? We're not just instinctively harsh. Right? We're, 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 we're instinctively disbelieving. We don't believe that, that God is in control. And if he is in control, that his control is good. And I'm angry at the end of the day, not because uh, I'm just instinctively angry, but because I wish more than anything that I was in control. Friend, at the root of every sinful action is a sinful disbelief. And can I be honest with you? I just want to confess to you. Friends, this happens to me all the time. Specifically off the top of my head, and I hope some of you are late, my children. All the time. All the time. When I become frustrated with my children, it's often not because like they're in danger or they're misbehaving. Oftentimes it's just because they're not listening to me. I'm not trying to keep them from jumping off of a brick. I just want them to sit down because I said so. In that moment, their safety isn't even paramount. My control is. 
And in those moments, that little baby running around the room, my little girl trying to put on her shoes or put her like pants on her head or whatever, right? That's not a good provision from God. Because my mind, if I'm disbelieving that he's a good provider, starts looking at other kids and going, man, I wish my kid was more like that. That would make me happier. Or, 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 or I look and, and think, man, if, if only these kids would sit down and be quiet, that would make me happy because then I would be in control, right? God's control in this situation isn't satisfactory enough. My control is. Friend, at the, at the root of every sinful action is a sinful disbelief. But check this out. We're not left on our own. And I don't even mean we're, like we're given a Bible and, and told the gospel. Paul and Titus literally don't want to leave us on our own. It's the reason Paul knows we need elders that are blameless in doctrine. Because he knew that the only way people are transformed is when the truth transforms them. Right? The only way our heart is freed from the lie that God doesn't satisfy is when we're faced with the truth that even when we didn't believe God could satisfy us, he's still more than willing to. Right? The only time I am freed from the lie that God's provision isn't good is when I, I, I come to the realization that even when I didn't believe it, God was still not just still had good provision, but was still actively providing. Right, that, that I was being provided for by a good God, even when I sat there and went, your provision's not good enough. Right, I'm, I'm freed from the lie that God is good when I'm confronted with the truth that even when I didn't believe that he was good, he still sent his son in my place to live the life I couldn't live and die the death I couldn't die. Also, that when I deserved uh, uh, dissatisfaction and deserved not, not to be provided for and deserved harshness instead of goodness, I could be met with the provision vision, the satisfaction and the goodness that was owed to Jesus. But, but Jesus laid down his life so that I could have it. Friends, the truth transforms us when we're confronted with the reality that even in our disbelief, God still meets us with grace because the gospel has made a way for us to be reconciled to the goodness, grace, mercy, glory, power of God, even when we fail to make a way ourselves, actually, because we have failed. To make our way ourselves. Friends, you are called to come to church to be a part of the community of God. To be transformed and, and set free. Because it's in this community of believers that we hear the truth that God reigns. That God's good. That God provides. That God's gracious. It's that same truth that, that Paul knew Titus would be preaching. And as a result would, would transform the lives of credence to not need the extra drink or the inappropriate movie or website or show or, or, or not need the angry outburst or, or not need the jealousy or not need the frustration or the resentment because we would, we would progressively learn that we have everything we need in the goodness of God. Right? It's not always going to feel good realizing that we don't believe something. But friends, it's in that realization that we are given the space to receive truth and be transformed in our repentance and our faith. You know, this honestly reminds me of the, 
the early conversations uh, around clinical trials and cancer treatments. If you know anything about clinical trials, it often goes that one side of the clinical trial is actual medicine, right? It's medicine that can possibly make the person better, and they're testing it out to see if it does. But on the other side of the clinical trial, people are given placebos. And placebos are usually sugar pills or some other form of non-medication, but non-detrimental nor positive, that people are given. But oftentimes with placebos, there's a placebo effect. You've probably heard of it. People begin to feel better, not because there's medicine, but rather just because there's something they think might be making them better. And the issue with this in the early conversations revolving around cancer treatments and clinical trials was how ethical would it be to give one side a medicine that potentially could save their life and treat the cancer that they were wrestling with, and on the other side, give someone something that made them think they were getting better. But in reality, inside, they were being eaten alive. Friends, oftentimes we cling to the idea that there's something more satisfying, that there's a control that's better, that there's a self-reliance that can get me where I need to go, when really they're just placebos. They make us think that we can get better. But in reality, we're just being eaten away on the inside by disbelief. And there's only one treatment. And it's the truth that God has made a way for us to receive the things that we most long for through the work of Jesus. But you see, friend, because of the gospel, the truth that we didn't believe can now be the truth that we stand on in order to receive the transformation that we long for. I want to say that again. In the gospel, the truth we didn't believe is now the truth we stand on to receive the transformation we long for. This is the power this is, this is that truth in verse 1, that truth that Paul says leads to godliness. Right? This is what God wants to do in your life, in my life, in us as a church. Again, not just because he's looking at us going, hey, I, I want to make sure you're good. He wants to care for us, yes, but also for the sake of those that we're going to minister to, the lives that are going to be changed through the change that happens in your life. This is the transforming work of the gospel that Paul knows happens when the truth is declared and we're transformed. I want to wrap up today, but, but hear me, I want to leave us with just a couple more, a couple of application points to help us wrestle with this idea. The first is that um, I want you to begin coming to church expecting God to move. I want you to begin coming to church expecting God to move, whether it's here online or whether it's in the parking lot of, of Terry Road or whether it's somewhere else. I want you to begin coming to church expecting God to move. The second thing is I want you to write down what you struggle with most. Ask yourself, why do I struggle with this? Right? Why does this get to me? Why does this tempt me? Try to understand what it says or reveals about your belief in God, or maybe your lack of belief in God. And don't hesitate to take that to brothers and sisters in the faith. Okay, like, like 
we, we, we work these things out, not in isolation, but in the context of community, in the context of spiritual family. And so write down what you struggle most with. And third, I want to encourage you, uh, again, I hope this doesn't rub you the wrong way I'm saying because I love you. Uh, I want to encourage you to repent of disbelief when you see it. As you're working through that, if, if you see disbelief come out of that, I want you to repent, repent of that. Confess your disbelief and, and join the centurion when he says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Okay, it, it, it's my belief that God desires to use you, to use me, to use our church, right, to do great things in the city, uh, to, to, to bring gospel transformation to those that are around us. But friend, that transformation starts with you. And so uh, I love you. I pray that this is an encouragement and this begins, I guess, a, uh, a perpetual practice of being transformed. Starts the, the progression of continuously being transformed into Christ's likeness through the truth transforming us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. I uh, pray that you would be with us. Um, I thank you for the spirit who not just inspired these words, but also works in our heart to reveal the places where we do not currently believe, where disbelief has chained us and bound us. Yet I thank you that it is also your spirit that now advocates to the Father and works in us and leads us to confess, Lord, this is where I do not believe. And I thank you for the grace that we're met with, the goodness, the love, the mercy that we're met with when we return uh, when the return answer to our confession and repentance is yes, but Jesus has. And because of him, you receive everything that you long for. Help us wrestle with these truths. Let them transform us as we continue to serve and labor uh, along with Jesus in order to see uh, this community and city renewed and transformed. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you all. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 